back to Life North of the 54th. I'm Garrett Brown. And I'm Preston Brown. Thank you for joining us on our show today. And with us as our guest, we have William. And William, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm William Brown. I've lived in the Peace Country for my whole life. I was born in Grand Prairie, and I uh, moved to Fort St. John when I was two and a half. Well, thank you for joining us. Yep. You are our second cousin, I guess. I think so, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think first cousin once removed. Ah, there we go. Yes, I think as soon as you get beyond the typical family terms, then it <laughs> then can become quite complicated. It becomes difficult. Either way, you're family, and we're grateful to have you here with us today. I'm so glad to be invited on. I've been listening to it. Uh, we really uh, appreciate it. myself up. Do you want to describe to us your experience of growing up in the peace country? Sure, I'd love to. Well, I have a lot of stories on here that I have listed out. I've done a lot of things up here. Growing up, I had a lot of freedom. Starting at around when I was around 11, my mom would let me bike beyond my block. And so I would go out with my friends and we bike all around my town. We bike out to like the lookout and stuff. And there's this, there's this lookout. If you keep going down 100th Street all the way and across the highway, there's this lookout where you can see the Peace River. It's really beautiful. And you can like walk down and check it out. And it started to slide now. But back when I was like 11 or 12, you could walk down. You could like look at the houses down there. And so we go there. That was very cool. My grand and granddad have a farm. So I could go there pretty much whenever I wanted. Uh, and I could be outside and enjoy myself. And we have trails in the trees and stuff. And we have big fields. So I spent a lot of my time out there uh, when I was a kid. But we have horses and we keep bees. And we have a, a dog and like a dugout. So we could go paddling. And the dog would like hop in the water with us. And she'd try and grab my paddle because I'd always I'd always have a kayak. So she'd grab my paddle and drag me into the reeds and take my paddle and strand me. <laughs> that happened uh, all the time. Just dog paddling wasn't enough for her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, she didn't want us to be in the water, I don't think. Yeah, lots of great outdoor stuff to do in the Peace Country. And the Fort St. John area is really beautiful because uh, it's right very close to the Peace River. So lots of beauty in all of the seasons, the short and the long seasons, right? Well, maybe not spring. We call it, uh, my family calls it brown because uh, that's pretty much all you see during spring. <laughs> yes, I, I never understood the, how spring can be people's favorite season, having grown up in the peace country. Yeah, same, same. And I went to, uh, for my grad trip, I went to London, England, and I saw real spring and I'm like, wow, okay, we're in. <laughs> I don't know what we're getting, but this is not spring uh, where I come from. <laughs> yeah, there are actually flowers. and I know there's flowers. There's like trees with flowers. I'm like, whoa, that's that's a little radical for me. Yeah. I did never saw trees with flowers until I was in the States, actually. Oh, yeah. Possibly yeah. trees. Pretty much shame. I think now the trees we have here, they've kind of, they've kind of grown up more. And, you know, we've kind of brought in trees from like different parts of the world here now. Uh, so I've... I was walking through Fish Creek a while ago, which is like this kind of like community forest area where you can walk through those trails. And I was mentioning to my friend, uh, we were talking about trees because I like I like trees a lot. I planted like, uh, I think, 50 in the last two years, probably around 50. And I was mentioning about uh, the trees that like weren't native to this area. And I was I was saying like, you know, I've never seen a mountain ash tree not on someone's property. And I looked and there's like this giant mountain ash tree in the forest. I'm like, well, like. I guess I'm wrong, but apparently they're not. I can't remember what kind of mountain ash it was, but it, it, like not native to Fort St. John. So it's just interesting that presumably a bird picked up a berry at some point and planted it in the forest. And now they're, they've kind of been integrated into this ecosystem as well. Where do you typically plant the trees around? 
at our farm, I have like a little shelter belt, which I did um, with Western larch. I think they're native to Montana and then acute willow, which are like kind of a prairie shelter belt type tree. I've also done cottonwood, which are surprisingly, there's not a lot of cottonwood trees here. I think it's because it's kind of dry sometimes, like most summers are very dry. So I had my uncle ship me up cuttings of cottonwood, like you just cut the end off a branch and he shipped them up from Calgary. And I did propagation like I rooted them with rooting hormone. I stuck them in soil and now they sit out by our dugout and they're just getting bigger every year. Oh, nice. Yeah. I remember cottonwoods down by the Wapri River outside of Grand Prairie and they probably do get the be the biggest deciduous trees around. Mm-hmm. Easily. Yeah, I'd say. Especially for here, like yeah, especially for circumference. I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen way bigger trees in other places of the world, but for there, they're big trees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have you been much farther north, William? Not a lot further north. I'd like to go. Uh, I think my family's doing a trip to Alaska, maybe next summer. We were thinking. I heard you guys went to. Did you guys go to Fairbanks? Was that you? Yep, we did. We went all the way to to Dead Horse, Stupid Bay. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty far north. <laughs> I do recommend the adventure. Yeah, we do highly recommend it. I was going to say yeah. the the trees, though, <laughs> as you do go farther north, they do get smaller and smaller, and then they, they do and get then smaller. they disappear. That's what my my uh, grandma mentioned. She said when she was she married to my uh, grandpa Brown when she came up from Seattle, and you know Seattle has some very nice uh, trees like the the big coastal Douglas fir and such. Uh, and she said the further north she got, she's like wondering if the trees are just going to stop at some point because they just kept getting shorter and shorter until she got here and she's like oh, oh the trees are so tiny <laughs> they eventually do stop though yeah they do yeah <laughs> i've heard that yeah that's really cool do you have any particular places aside from maybe the lookout point or um, people that you enjoyed you know, growing up with or hanging out with in the peace country there's a lot of people uh in the peace country that i love um my friends like Cameron and Deegan, Zach and Alex, they're all my like my really close buddies on Jed, of course. Their dad has like a fighting gym. So we go there and we just get like free reign of the place. It's amazing. Like we just go, there's no one there. And it's it's just a, there's like a lifting part to it too. So we can just go to the gym whenever we want. It's like completely quiet. That's something I do really like about the peace country is how quiet stuff is. Like we can go, you know, we have the the Pomeroy Sports Center, which is like an indoor oval. I do speed skating. And I, there's only five ovals, I think, in North America, including ours. And the the other ones are all in big cities. And I can go to our oval at like 1030 in the morning for fast skate for $3. And I'm the only person, like literally the only person on the ice. It's just me. And it's like perfect <laughs> ice. There's no one there. I can play music. It's completely quiet. It's so cool. I remember, I think Fort St. John has a good history of well skaters. They do. They do have, we have. Who went to yeah. Olympics? I can't remember. Denny Morrison went to the Olympics. Yeah. Pro, I think there's a few more. We have some people who are probably going to the Olympics pretty soon. I think uh, Josh Telson. I, I think he's, if he's on the national team, I think he's going to, he'll probably be an Olympian. A difficult sport in speed skating. A lot of light power. A lot of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, you couldn't tell by looking at me, but I can go pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's pretty amazing. I've been living in pretty big cities since I left. and. Yeah, it's really nice to have something to yourself sometimes, especially green space. Oh, it's so nice. Yeah, especially such a big facility, too. And it's just me and maybe some kids because there's a school in there, too. And they're all downstairs. And it's just me. I'm like, wow, this is I don't think I could get that anywhere else. And that's what my uncle said. I took him. He's from Calgary. So he's been on the Calgary Oval bunch. And I took him to our Oval. And he's like, wow, there's nowhere else. I don't think in the world that you could 
get a facility this nice to yourself. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So what takes you into speed skating? Why a peculiar sport such as that? <laughs> Why? Probably because we had the indoor <laughs> oval. My mom said, uh, she told me this story. Obviously, I wasn't. I was started really, really young, like four. So I, I couldn't remember why I did it, but so they they had this thing called Canscape where the figure skating girls would like, they teach all these like little kids how to skate. And so I would go to that and all I wanted to do was skate laps as fast as I could. And I'd like run away and go skate laps and they're like, just put them in speed skating. It's, I love it. And I did. It was so good. That's uh, that's really amazing. I have made a lot of my fr- uh, friends through, through speed skating too. And we have a really strong club here. Like we are really, really competitive and I'm not sure if the rest of like speed skating BC likes us because we just, you know, we compete. So I don't know how to say it. We're just, we're just really, really good. Like for the size of town we are. Yeah. Yeah. But it seems very much unlike hockey or curling, right? Because your speed skating oval is a specific type of ice, right? That you mm-hmm. don't share with, it is. with other skaters or other sports, no, right? Just like no other sports just like they have public skate up there and stuff but other than that no it's pretty much just ours oh and i do have i do have other stories uh skating related stories i'm not sure if this was like true where you grew up but like almost every school well not every school but a whole bunch of them in town have like skating rinks next to them too which i think is a pretty like a particularly northern thing is having like an outdoor skating rink next to your school and we used to go out before the sun rose uh, when I was in probably grade four or five and we get on the skating rink, you could watch the sunrise. It was very, very cool because the sun rises midwinter, probably like nine twenty, nine thirty in the morning. And so you could like you'd go skating and it's like pitch black and there's no lights on the ice. It's and it's just people out with flashlights and you can watch the sun rise. Oh, and then the, you go home, and the sun's almost down. <laughs> yeah, I definitely remember my elementary junior high school would flood part of the field every year for a skating rink yeah it wasn't even a dedicated yeah. part of the field it was just they just put a boards and like put water in it <laughs> they just put a, they yeah. just like put the water there and but they never treated the ice it was a part of the field that would flood naturally too in the springtime oh. as it was right going between frost and thaw that there was parts of the playground field that were just naturally big puddles yeah my old house our yard was kind of sunk down all our neighbors built their yards up because it was kind of like a flood space so all like all our neighbors yards drained into my yard so there's probably a foot of water in my yard and uh one year we took the canoe out and we paddled around my backyard just uh like me and my friends were just like oh i wonder if we could do laps of the yard in the canoe and oh, we totally could we totally had more than enough room to <laughs> to paddle about oh man that's beautiful and a little sad frustrating <laughs> yeah i know we had to get like had to go to uh, there's this place called Peace Country Rentals. They do like all the rentals in town. And uh, we had to get, uh, if you know what a trash pump is, like it's just a giant pump, right? And we, we'd have to slap that down and then pump it all out in the street. And it'd rain and it'd flood again. And <laughs> uh, But I mean, the grass there was very nice. Very nice grass. You could have a rice paddy there. Yeah, you, pr- you probably could, yeah. <laughs> Ed, do you have any memorable weather events? That you remember from the Peace Country? There's a few. I do like meteorology. I'll just random segue. I have this like, <laughs> I love telling everybody about my lightning rod. So I have a, uh, I call it the lightning attractor. It's in the field. So it's a 20 foot copper pole. 
with a grounding rod I welded to the top, uh, which is like pointed so that basically how it was explained to me is that the charges like fly off there and it kind of it tra- attracts lightning and it terminates into a bucket of silica sand and there's a bunch of wires coming off of it and there's like a tube around the base of the pipe so that if lightning hits it, it'll go into the sand and make these things called fulgurites, which I really wanted to make, which fulgurite just means lightning glass. And it kind of worked. It didn't make any lightning glass. It just, like, it used to have a ball on top. And it, like, one day it came out, the ball was just completely charred, like, after a lightning storm. And I'm like, okay, maybe it got hit. And I look in the bucket and there's just nothing. I'm like, oh, well. And I, I assume that maybe it got hit and maybe it didn't. I can't tell. Maybe it didn't get hit that bad. But we had a tornado one year, just like a small one. And it hit my great uncle Dave's house and it knocked, like, I think it knocked his fence over and I think it knocked someone into his yard or something like that. And it like ripped a bunch of shingles off his house. I've seen like micro bursts, if you know what those are in meteorology, like where there's a huge, like I've seen those. That's a huge pouring of rain, a sudden pouring of rain, right? Or pouring, yeah, of rain and wind and all kinds of things and like spreads out. You could see those because my grand's house, we're on a, like a big kind of valley, but it's kind of a shallow valley. So there's farms on either side. And it's really beautiful. You can see really far. You can see down the valley in both directions. But all the good storms, they come from the west, so you can see it roll over the valley. So you can see everybody get hit before you. And so it's really cool. You can see like the lightning hitting the other side of the valley. You can see the rain kind of flowing over. Ah, oh, it's so nice. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder. Oh. Sorry. What is that silicate called again? Silica sand. This means it has more quartz. And what does it turn into when it gets struck by lightning? It's called a fulgurite, like lightning glass. Fulgurite. Yeah. I wonder if, does the fulgurite need like a plasma to turn, like to turn from silicate sand into? I believe so, yeah. That's really cool. I've never, I've never seen fulgurite. I hadn't really heard of it either. But studying physics, I've definitely heard of the Trinitite from the Trinity site. Oh, yeah, yeah. From New Mexico, where they detonated the first atomic bomb. The green glass. Yeah. Yeah. I had, when I was living in Utah, intentions to try and go down to the Trinitite site and get some but i think it's a federal offense to take the trinitite away i think it's a federal crime yeah i considered that too (laughs) yeah it's also right it's a military facility and so it only opens up to the public for public viewing twice a year and so they have it pretty tight under wraps that you can't take any trinitite pretty cool stuff though not great source of it fulgurite seems much cooler yeah yeah it's true it would be cool to have trinitite though. yeah um, that's quite a piece of to have in any collection yeah exactly the trinitite yeah yeah you know you have to have a nuclear explosion to get some yeah they are a lot more lightning strikes than nukes yeah thank goodness <laughs> other cool weather events that i just had in my notes that i like is we have these things called chinooks where it's like the warm ocean wind that comes over the mountains and it, it melts all the snow chinook uh means snow eater but my favorite thing is at my grandparents house i have lots of great videos of this but it kind of when the snow is dry it'll pick it up and it'll like throw it but it stays really close to the ground so probably only half a foot above the ground there's like snow and it kind of flows it looks like a, a river almost there's this thing called the chinook arch because the the chinook it kind of makes a hole in the clouds right above the horizon so at golden hour the sun will come down and it'll just it's absolutely blinding, but it's just amazing looking. Like it just makes kind of the ground look like a golden river because there's like snow, like particles flowing everywhere, and the wind's like seventy or eighty kilometers an hour, and it just looks absolutely incredible. Like some of my favorite moments are like I'm out of my snowmobile and I'm like in the field, 
and there's like snow flying and you kick up snow and it goes flying and it's all golden color it's just so cool that's amazing you ever have it where the the wind blows the snow and it rolls the snowballs and they have like little snowballs all over the field i've seen that a few times it's pretty rare i've never seen that in person it's just like perfect conditions of like the weight of the snow being able to move with the wind Mm -hmm. and depending on the slope of the ground as well and then it has to be warm enough that the snow sticks that's a real thing too i'd love to see that in person one good thing this year was it was really cold but it didn't snow like it's been very dry so charlie lake froze over thick enough to skate but not thick enough to drive on so i've been out like three or four times and skated on the lake and it's like crystal clear all the way across i skated all the way across and back and up and down it's just so amazing oh that's pretty cool it's not too often that the peace country gets cold enough to freeze lakes for skating and not snow yeah usually like once every 10 years i think is what my friend bruce told me yeah last winter i remember like this was 2011 Mm -hmm. this is the first kind of the one of the first years after i graduated it got like bitterly cold and no snow yeah, exactly. We have videos of me skating on the lake from 2011. It was like the exact same conditions as now. It makes it a little confusing when you work outside, though, because it's pretty cold and it looks fine because it's not. There's no snow on the ground, but it's like, no, I need to yeah, bundle up because it's going to be pretty cold. It's going to be like minus 25. <laughs> exactly. or something. It messes with you. Yeah, it messes. Got to wear my snow boots when there's little snow. <laughs> yeah, I know it's so horrible, right? I just want to wear like I have like blundstones that I wear everywhere, but my toes just. Like get so cold in them all the time. I'm like, I'll be fine. I'm only out for like five minutes, and like three minutes in, I'm like, oh, this is horrible. Send me inside, please. Thanks for sharing. That's that's pretty cool. I also wanted to ask you, William, about your interest in astrophotography. I saw that you've been sharing some really cool photos recently. Yeah, do you want to tell us more about your hobby? You're you're getting pretty good at it. I would love to. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate that because you do like astrophysics and stuff. So I see you like like my uh, like post on like a picture of the moon I took. I'm like, yeah, look at that, <laughs> look at that. Uh, uh, I think I got into it because just the skies are so clear here. Astronomers use I think it's called Bordel scale. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It, it goes from like one to nine, and one being like the clearest of clear, and the nine being like horribly light polluted, like you're in the middle of Los Angeles and something like that. I think we're a two, like a one or a two, like we are have ridiculously clear skies. And that's why you can see stuff like the northern lights. We can see them even on nights when they're pretty bad. Like you can see northern lights, you can see stars. Any night that it's clear, you can see stars easily. You can see the Milky Way, even though it's not up for most of the year for us and only comes up, I think, spring kind of and early summer. Yeah. And then you get to that point where there's like, there's no... There's not enough darkness to see the stars. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the point. That's the point that kind of kills me. Where it's like I stayed up on the longest day of the year, and I could see like the sun. I could tell where it was on the like horizons. I watched it like go north and then creep up. It's like perpetual sunset, basically. Yeah, all night long, which was. I mean, it's really cool, but I want to see the stars. And uh, my grandparents have sponsored me in my hobby because astrophotography, as you can imagine, is it's kind of expensive. <laughs> like if you want to get good stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I got like an eight inch Dibsonian telescope, which is like a big, it's basically a giant tube and it's motorized, oh. which <laughs> I mean, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I want to find stuff and I don't want to find it by myself. But <laughs> yes, I think the first time that I, I realized like I want to do astro. Uh, astrophotography is when i 
I had like my grandparents had this old telescope and I put my phone up to it looking at the moon and it looked like one of those photos on the NASA website. I'm like, wow, that's pretty good. And so it just kind of spiraled from there and I just got like better equipment and I got like a better phone and I got like a mount for my phone so I don't have to like haphazardly put my hand up there and risk like bumping the telescope. Yeah. The motorized telescope helps. You can just track objects in the sky and my photos just got better and better. And I also started going places like, you know, I went to Utah for the, the annual solar eclipse there, and I got a lot of good photos there. It was just incredible. Did you get those photos with your phone? Yeah, they're all with my phone. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I love this phone. Uh, also a grad gift, but I, I love it. It's just ridiculous when I got it. I was amazed by how good the camera was. It, yeah, if I may share as well, it's actually quite astonishing what you can do with a pretty basic sensor. Mm-hmm. There is this telescope that my PhD advisor got. He got a whole bunch of them for his a class that he teaches about uh, astrophysics. And it's called a Unistellar telescope. That's the brand Unistellar. And mm-hmm. essentially, what it is, it's a Dobsonian type telescope, right? So it uses a a mirror instead of mm-hmm. refracting lenses um, like a Newtonian telescope. But it doesn't have an eyepiece, so the light comes in the big tube. It's only about six inches wide. It reflects off the primary mirror at the back of the telescope. It goes up almost to the other end of the telescope again and reflects off the secondary mirror and then goes all the way back down to a pretty tiny, actually quite pathetic sensor. But the way that it works is it's powered by a Raspberry Pi. And so you can just point the telescope at the sky and say, find where I am in the app and then say, go to this object and it will just move to that object for you. Mm -hmm. And then it will track the object for you and even though it's a rather pathetic sensor because you have such a long exposure of well-tracked sky even in downtown toronto you can get pretty decent images from from galaxies or other really diffuse objects that's pretty amazing yeah because in spite of all the light pollution if you stack enough photos (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's all the layers you just gotta just keep stacking them on you can get a good photo so yeah i'm quite surprised that you're doing it with a phone you just take lots of pictures with your phone and then stack them is that what you're doing sometimes yeah uh most of my photos are actually just one long exposure i've experimented with stacking a little bit and i'm like i'm not that good at it i'd like to learn how to do it better because i want to get like the crab nebula and the horsehead nebula like i want to get nebulas Mm -hmm. and i want to get the andromeda galaxy like i've gotten it kind of but only just the Um, nucleus of it not the the spread of it yeah yeah, I want the spread. I want all of it, right? Yeah, I think and I got that. the thing that I love most about the Andromeda Galaxy is on a really dark night with really clear skies, you can kind of make it out with the naked eye. Mm-hmm. Is that the one below Orion or is it somewhere else? Uh, no, that one is the Orion's Nebula. Okay. And on dark skies, you can't... Yeah, no, it's present. Uh, on dark... I, I have seen that one before. Yeah, where you can it's see it's eye. like colorful and diffuse and sort of like a blob in the belt or like in the... Lower belt. The lower belt of, or the sword of Orion. Yeah, the Andromeda Galaxy, if you could see all of it on a super clear night, it would be six times the size of the full moon. Like, Mm -hmm. it would just, like, take Mm -hmm. a huge portion of the sky. But you can't see it because it's diffuse and it's distant, you know, like two million light years away, so. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's cool stuff, though. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry. I'm really excited to talk to you about this, William, because it's, it's pretty amazing. No, I love talking about it. It's my favorite thing. Also, like binary star systems, I want to. I want to try and find some of those. Try and see if I can see like the tiny little, maybe the little gap between the stars. If I get enough magnification, it's just it, like it isn't even 
sometimes it's not a matter of magnification. It's a matter of like how much light your telescope can take in. Because eventually you get to a point where you can't focus anymore because you have, like you zoom in too much, essentially. I can't remember how you calculate that, but I think magnification is just the focal length of your telescope divided by the focal length of your lens. Yeah. So if I like have, I have a 1200 millimeter focal length divided by, I usually uh, use a five millimeter lens. And so that's like 240, I think, times magnification-ish. Which is, I mean, that's pretty good. Like, that's that's all you need for any kind of amateur hobby stuff, right? You can see Saturn's rings with that. Mm-hmm. You can see Jupiter and some moons. You can see, I'm going to botch the names probably. I think you can see Io, yep. uh, Callisto, uh, Ganymede. Ganymede. Uh, Europa? Yeah. Yep, Europa. Those are all the Galileo ones, right? That's right. Yeah, I think there are three main factors in, like, astrophotography. There's magnification, which is most helpful mm-hmm. for viewing solar system objects because they're like astronomically, mm-hmm. they're very close. <laughs> and then they're very bright. Yeah. Then you need aperture size. Yeah, aperture size to, to resolve yeah. narrow distances. So if you wanted to resolve binaries, then you need a large aperture because the, the physics is limited by the diffraction. Then you just need sensitivity uh, for the other ones. One of the professors at the University of Toronto in the astronomy department, he's one of the main principal investigators on an interesting telescope called the Dragonfly Telescope. It was based in Arizona and New Mexico, I think. But the way that they do it is they just take a bunch of, they take a bunch of like Canon DSLRs with huge zoom lenses, and then they just have an array of like 25 of them so that you have 25 different cameras all pointing in exactly the same direction. Mm -hmm. Then you take all of those images and you stack them on top of each other. The physics that they're doing is they're looking for like ultra diffuse dwarf galaxies in the local neighborhood. So like these are mm-hmm. local neighborhood. Yeah, like the local group. Yeah, right. So you have the Milky Way <laughs> and the Andromeda galaxy, and they both have like trillions of stars. And then you have dwarf galaxies like the Magellanic Clouds, which have probably billions of stars. But then you have mm-hmm. ultra diffuse galaxies, which are maybe they only have like a million stars in them. Then you're just sort of like, well, how can you tell that those million stars are gravitationally bound and not just like somewhere in between? And then, yeah, it's pretty cool stuff that they're doing. And really, they're just using DSLR cameras to take thousands of photos and stack them on top of each other and find the science and the noise. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's crazy that they can do that with just DSLR cameras. Yeah, DSLR cameras through, you know, Earth's atmosphere and stuff like that. <laughs> I think I would think you need like the James Webb Space Telescope to do something like that. But yeah, apparently not. Yeah, I don't know how good that telescope would be for doing those. No, maybe not the best. It's good for, like, I think they were trying to find, like, atmospheric composition in exoplanets. I think that was really cool to me. Yeah, yeah. It... I, I gave I gave a speech, and there we always did speech competitions at home. Uh, like, at, in my district, they're a big thing. And my topics were always, like, <laughs> kind of they went above everybody's heads a little bit. In grade four, I did a, I saw a whole bunch of stuff on the Kepler Space Telescope. And so I did like this speech on like finding exoplanets in grade four of the Kepler Space Telescope. <laughs> My teacher had no idea what I was talking about. He's like, what do you mean other planets? You're crazy. <laughs> and all the little kids, I think they voted for some kid who like did it on like Deadpool or something <laughs> instead of me. Um, I'm still really bummed out about that. Speak to people's understandings, William. I know. I can't. I'm just, I was just too, too advanced as a grade four. <laughs> yeah, that's why. The MCU gets billions of dollars in 
both in budget and in, in revenue. And then mm-hmm. space science gets some fraction less of that. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Have you heard, this is I'll, like, sorry, still on the same topic here, but like, have you heard of adaptive optics in telescopes? I have not. So some of the biggest telescopes, like the observatories in Chile and in Hawaii. So these are really big telescopes that were built decades ago. And then the Hubble Space Telescope came along and showed the kind of clarity of images that you can get when you take pictures from space, right? And it's just no atmosphere in the way. It's just very beautiful. But then people, you know, very clever people figured out that if you shine powerful lasers from your telescope out into space and you watch how the laser wobbles because of the atmosphere, you can then use hydraulics or like pistons to deform or like bend the mirror on like millisecond timescales in very small like micrometer or like millimeter amounts to bend the mirror into funny little ways to correct the wobbling of the atmosphere. And so since the Hubble Space Telescope and adaptive optics have come, adaptive optics actually make taking pictures of solar system objects from ground-based observatories even better than the Hubble Space Telescope. Because these are like the Hubble Space Telescope is a rather large telescope but it's tiny compared to the size of the mirrors that they have on the land. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so these adaptive optic systems are absolutely incredible what they do now. And most of like the really nice solar system pictures that we get are basically from ground observatories because the Hubble Space Telescope is busy doing things for the deep universe and cosmology and stuff like that. I had no idea about that. I, you know, I, I've seen videos and like you can see the lasers coming out of the, I'm like, why are they shooting lasers into the atmosphere? It makes sense now. Thank you. That was, that's interesting. That's so cool. I had no idea. They have like measure how the, well, it kind of refracts the lasers. It goes up and they can mirror that. I had no idea. That is yeah. absolutely insane that we can do that. That's a lot of clever science. That is a <laughs> lot of, a lot of PhDs went into that. Yeah. Not only the PhDs to figure out the math that you could do that. Uh, and then the mm-hmm. PhDs to figure out the engineering on how to do that. Mm-hmm. And then the PhDs to actually do it. Yeah. Lots of work. Yeah, exactly. They can do that, and I'm, like, struggling to do my calculus exam. <laughs> it just takes practice. It just takes practice, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah going back to the eclipse, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Was that your first experience with a solar eclipse? Second. My, the first one, uh, there was a total solar eclipse in most parts of the U.S. Oh, I can't remember what year. What, maybe 2016 or 2017. It was 2017. 2017. Yeah. I think August 2017. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was at speed skating camp during the summer. And I got pulled out and we went down. I had eclipse glasses and I looked up and I saw, I'm like, where's the moon? And then I look up and I'm like, oh man, the moon is over the sun. And I'm like, what's going on? But I was, I was so pumped to see it that day, partially because like, it's really cool to see a solar eclipse off, obviously, but also because I got to skip like the really hard on ice training <laughs> to see it. Because we had, we got mixed up one year. So like the kind of medium age kids, like the older kids, there's this, for context, there was this coach uh, named Arno. He came, he was an Olympic coach, like he coached Olympians. He came from Calgary to do coaching at our speed skating camp. Like we have like a world-class speed skating camp. It's really good at our oval. Like ton of people from all over come to it. I've seen kids like come from the U.S. and stuff to do it. And there was a mix-up. So we were given the Olympic coach. <laughs> and so it, and like these four kids and me, we were just worked just all day. And like I could, I could barely stand up the next day. It was so brutal. <laughs> so I was I was happy of any opportunity to skip like one of Arno's ice sessions. Man, that's intense. 
It was very intense. So you've trained like an Olympian at some point. I have. Yeah. I've trained with Olympians too. Denny uh, was at that speed skating camp as well. That's so cool. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Like speed skating is just such a small world. So when you went all the way down to Utah for the solar eclipse, the more recent one, was it a, a total solar eclipse where you're in like optimal place to view it? Um, I mean, we were in like a very optimal place. Like it went right over us, but I think it was an annular it's called. So since the moon is on an elliptical orbit, it's not always as big as the, well, as big relative to us. It doesn't appear the same size in the sky as the sun. So there's, it's called a, they call it like a ring of fire eclipse. So the sun made a ring around the moon that you could see everything got, it got a lot darker. Like you could tell that it was darker. It got cold. It was cold on top of that mountain because <laughs> we, we went up. It was already probably like minus two or three on that mountain. It was probably like minus seven by the time we were done. And I was just wearing like a hoodie and jeans. Everybody else that up there was like, you could, you could tell I was from Canada when I was up on that mountain because I'm in like hoodie and jeans. Everybody else is like two coats and <laughs> snow pants. And I'm just like, oh, wow, this is. It's not that bad up here. When I saw the 2017 eclipse after totality had passed, we were driving back and I imagine it would be similar for an annular eclipse. When most of the sun is blocked out, the shadows seem weird. Was it like that for you? They are weird, yeah. It was like that for us back in 2017. I remember we you make like a square with your hands, like with your fingers, and like one side would be like caved in in a really weird way. I, I don't know how that works. It was just really strange. It's also because typically when the sun is out in its full glory, it's a disc in the sky. Mm-hmm. But if you have the moon blocking most of it, then it's more of a point source of light or like even a crescent, it's a crescent. which means that so typically when you hold your hand out so that your hand casts a shadow from the sun onto the ground on a typical day, your shadow would look blurry because you have light mm-hmm. from one half of the sun coming in one direction and light from the other half of the sun coming the other direction. So they would sort of make the edges of your shadow fuzzy. But during the tightest part of the eclipse, most of the sun is blocked. And so the light only comes from one side. So you would have like a really crisp, clean shadow, which makes Mm -hmm. the world look fake. Very fake. Yeah. It looks like it's been lit by a spotlight in a studio because all the shadows are so like crisp and thin. Yeah, I saw something like that. It happens in Hawaii or on the equator or something. It's like when the sun is exactly perfectly straight upwards, like shadows are cast directly down. And so anything that's like wider on the base than it is on the top looks like there's it has no shadow. So it looks really, really strange. Looks cartoony. Like traffic cones. Yeah, it looks cartoony. Yeah, exactly. It's like fake. It's like someone drew it. <laughs> yep, happens four times a year, depending where you are. Mm-hmm. I want to see that too. <laughs> Yeah, I have not been into the tropics, so I haven't ever been in a place where I would, would do that. Mm-hmm. Nor have I been to the Southern Hemisphere to see some of the amazing things like the Magellanic Cloud. Mm. Are there some other things, William, that you're interested in photographing, like astrophotography? That you, you were mentioning that you wanted to capture some binaries, but anything else? Yeah. So when Haley's Comet comes back, I really want to get that, but that's like 2061, so I have lots of time to get ready for Haley's Comet to come back. I want to get a comet at some point. When there's like a good bright one that's visible at a decent time of night, like not four in the morning, (laughs) then I'll be ready and I'll be going for it. (laughs) Uh, That and like, I want to get better pictures of Jupiter. Like all my Jupiter pictures seem to be blown out. So I want to like kind of work with stacking a little bit more and like lower my exposure and then just stack images Mm -hmm. instead of trying to get it in one shot. 
Preston, from your experience living in the Southern Hemisphere, do you have any thoughts to share on space from down under? From a from an upside down perspective? Yeah, the moon is upside down. You know, having grown up far enough north, when you look north, there's like lots of major stars you see and major constellations. But like when I was in Australia, I've went out in the wilderness at night to look at the stars. And you look south and it's like, there's not very much looking south that you can see with the naked eye. That's what I thought. I thought it seemed rather empty from a naked eye perspective. But I wasn't far enough south to see the auroras down there. Yeah. Because like even like Victoria, Australia, it's fairly far south compared to like most of the land on Earth. But it's not really that far south compared to like other places are north. Mm-hmm. But there was a, a lunar eclipse while I was there. And I remember getting up in the night to go look at it. And it was pretty much the same as lunar eclipses that I've seen other places. <laughs> <laughs> Just moon goes, you kind of watch the orange shadow go over the moon. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing, Preston. So William, do you want to tell us what your future plans are now that you've graduated from the great high school? The great high school. I think second worst graduated by the Fraser Institute for BC. (laughs) (laughs) I should provide some context for that rating, but uh, they rated it like that because we have so many high-income families. Like Fort St. John's very high-income. I think our average income is like somewhere over $100,000 a year. It's like one hundred seven, I think. But our high school is rated badly because a lot of kids like well, can drop out and still like make a lot of money because there's lots of oil and gas jobs for them to go into. And and they come from high-income families. And that's just, I've been told that that contributes to the poor rating. It's not necessarily that our education is absolutely terrible up here. <laughs> I think it's good enough. We've had people win the Loran, which is like, it's like the scholarship in the country, like the Loran one. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of it, but it's it's big. It's like, hundred thousand dollar full ride anywhere you go wow that's really good um and you have to yeah you compete with people all over the country and we've had loran winners there's only one every year and we've had uh we had one just a few years ago we have very good well i mean you go anywhere you can find really good students like people who are really dedicated to school but there's a lot of people like to work hard up here i found uh and for me i've been doing courses at northern Lights college here and I met so many fun people here. I'm so glad I stayed. There's like this group of Japanese exchange students and Chinese exchange students that I hang out with. They're so fun. Love spending time with them. And I'm also going to go to Japan in like April, May because of that. Because now I have friends there. And I'm like, well, now I have to go to Japan to visit my friends. But as far as my future, I'm going to go to UFC next year and study finance. And then I have like an internship after university set up at a hedge fund in uh cincinnati with a guy who's also named will brown (laughs) funnily enough (laughs) but i'm gonna go yeah i'm gonna go do that i want to work in the hedge fund industry because i really like i like investing a lot i'd like to get more into like the options side of things maybe selling options maybe uh, maybe working like a distressed credit hedge fund or something like that maybe something that works with like debt or companies that like aren't having a really good time Mm -hmm. and like restructuring kind of fixing companies I can see myself doing really well in an industry like that. And it pays a lot. So that's true. It does. <laughs> I can come up here and like buy a nice farm or something, which I can see myself doing. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of work in that area. That's pretty fascinating. What kind of courses or work have you been doing at Northern Lights College? Oh, just general courses. Like, like I said, I have a calculus exam tomorrow. So <laughs> I've just been like, I was like studying up until like 30 minutes before the, uh, the interview. And I'm like, oh yeah, I should probably like, write some stuff down calculus statistics just general courses economics english just 
stuff because it's so much cheaper here and the courses will transfer like i, I think my semester was only around a thousand dollars wow nice which is like that's not bad at all right <laughs> yeah that's not too bad yeah yeah and i can live at home and all my friends stayed we're all going to move together next year and we're all going to calgary so it's going to be it's going to be pretty wild i think <laughs> yeah i think so moving to the metropolis of calgary <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly it's one of the biggest cities in canada yeah Mm-hmm. it's pretty spread out takes up a lot of geographical area yes yeah exactly like without looking it up i guess it's the fourth largest maybe toronto vancouver montreal and then calgary maybe i would think so that makes sense oh, to me. yeah yeah i flew over when i was going to utah i went through calgary and i like i hadn't gone a little bit and so i'm looking out and i'm like man this thing just keeps going in every direction like flying over calgary i'm like there's just calgary on all sides of me as far as i can see yeah. Are the friends that you've made in at Northern Lights College, are any of them from Tokyo? No, they're all from, there's like a sister school of Northern Lights College in Japan, it's in Osaka. Okay, cool. Some might be from Tokyo originally, I don't know, but all I know is that they all live in Osaka now. Yeah, because Tokyo is, that's a city. It's ridiculous. Ar- arguably the biggest metropolis in the world. Yeah. I was looking it up and even in like 1910, 1920, it had like 9 or 10 million people in it. <laughs> that's crazy that's, that's like a tenth of the world population in 1910 yeah it's a big it's a big place so if you go visit japan yeah that's a there are metropolis cities in japan <laughs> oh yeah i bet osaka i've told like the area around it since it's, it's like such a big harbor area mm-hmm. like it, the, the metropolis like the spread around that place is huge like it just goes in all directions japan isn't that big overall and it has so many people there and every time I go to somewhere that's like, even Salt Lake, I went and I'm just like, I can't get over how many people are in these places. I'm like, they're all crammed into such a small area. How, how can you like this? It doesn't seem very enjoyable. I think that's something that I also found a lot when I left the peace country, like right, growing up mm-hmm. in, in Grand Prairie. And I struggled to fathom cities that were that big. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You live like 10 kilometers out of town and you drive five kilometers past countryside before you get to the edge of town. And then you, I don't know, drive five kilometers from the edge of town into downtown. And you move to a place like, I don't know, even like Toronto. It's like, like I live in downtown Toronto and it's like, okay, I want to leave Toronto. And it's like, okay, that's going to take even an hour on a good day just to like get out of Toronto because there's just people, just so many people. It just stretches for so far. That's what I like about town is that I could just, even as a kid on my bike, it's like, I can go anywhere in town. It doesn't matter how far my friend lives from my house. I can just go. It's that easy. Yeah. Even going to the farm, which is like, it's a decent way out of town. Like, it's like probably 13, 14 kilometers out of town. It's only 15 minutes. It's not that far. Yeah. Yeah, there was definitely in 2020 and 2021, a lot of people who left the cities to move to places where they could work remotely because they had internet access. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't get a lot of those people. It's too cold for them up here, I think. Yeah, I think a lot of them went to Kelowna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. I heard that Kelowna had a huge influx of remote workers. Yeah, I bet. My friend moved there, and holy cow, it was just... Like, we went there 2021, and then I went there just this summer, 2023. And the difference in, like, how busy it was... I was in about the same time of the year both times, kind of late August. It was just so much busier the second time I was there. Even though I was going to the same places, it just felt so much more crowded. It was crazy. My in-laws live in Kelowna, so I visited many times. <laughs> so busy in the summer. It's the Canadian Mediterranean. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
So William, I think as we probably come to wrapping up here, do you have any insights you want to share with us about life or things that you've learned along the way or anything about the peace country? Uh, yeah, I think living here has taught me that there's a lot of people behind the scenes, so to speak, that make a really big impact on like our country and our economy. I think relatively speaking, compared to Vancouver, you would consider us behind the scenes, but we're producing like we have huge dams, right? Producing electricity. We produce gas. We, I think they built a new LNG terminal on the coast and we ship, I think that doubled the amount of gas we ship out of here. So now we're shipping it to other countries too, besides like Canada and the US. Around 50% depends on the province you're in of people heat their homes with natural gas, right? And the other people, it's going to be electricity. We produce both. And, you know, sometimes you don't think about where that comes from, but it comes from the peace region. We're a big producer of all kinds of things, whether it be like lumber, natural gas, electricity, we you know, we make it all. And not a lot of people recognize that. Like, I know people in Vancouver come up for speed skinning because they didn't even know we existed, right? But, and yet we power their homes. It's it's very interesting how uh, people don't really know where stuff comes from. And I think living here has allowed me to kind of appreciate that more and also appreciate like how free I am up here when I go to like a city or something. And I'm like, well, I can't just ride my bike to my friend's house, right? Or just drive my car five minutes to the other end of town. I'm it's like an hour, right? It's nothing's close. And I don't think I could build an igloo. And, and when I, if I live in Calgary, which I've done here, like it took me three days, it was eight hour days. It was awesome. And I think I just, I've had just such an amazing childhood and it's just so free. And I wish more people could experience that because it's just such an amazing thing to be able to like go out to your grandparents' farm and just have 140 acres to yourself. I think that is something that is underappreciated a lot, is recognizing where things come from. Even in Toronto, I went and I bought some honey, and sure enough, the honey came from the peace country. And it's like, <laughs> like where does stuff come from? Sure, the peace country, it, it obviously doesn't produce everything and provide stuff for everyone, mm -hmm. but, but there are people working really hard there that don't get the appreciation that they probably deserve for the hard work that they do. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. I couldn't agree more. There's... Yeah, it's just interesting to think of where stuff comes from. And I think growing up there, it really helps you see that. Even though I didn't grow up on a farm, I saw people cultivating barley or canola or something and or you know doing dairy work, you know, a bunch of things that's like I, I could see it. Like I lived around where people were, were producing food and you know, things for others and it at least helped me appreciate where things came from and the kind of work that it takes to get stuff from there to me. That is insightful. William, thanks. Thanks for sharing. Yes, thank you. Yeah. We really appreciate your words. Definitely appreciate you joining us, William. I know everybody has a story to tell that is unique to them and unique to share. So we really appreciate you sharing your story with us today. Anytime. I love coming on this podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me. That was really fun. Yeah. And thanks so much for joining us. We're grateful to all those who do listen. It's a privilege for us to make this show and talk to people. So we're grateful for those who do listen. And if you have feedback for us, you can email us at lifenorthofthe54th at gmail.com, or you can go to our website, peacecountrylife.ca slash feedback. Thank you, William, for joining us. We hope your calculus test goes well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Enjoy your evening. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Bye.